Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. And the bloke jumped out with one of the flight attendants, uh, Kay Gorham, as a hostage. And as he was making his way across to the uh, light aircraft, the police had set up a, uh, a shooting uh, squad uh, to, to try him, and also Paul Sanderman was armed. But uh, so as he was going across to the, the Cessna, uh, they managed to shoot him and lay him down. But he, in the meantime, he got his pistol out and managed to shoot Paul Sanderman. The voice there of Arthur Hall describing the day he was on duty at the terminal at Alice Springs Airport when there was an attempted hijacking of a Fokker Friendship. You'll hear more about that in a moment. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills. I will be your host for this episode where I talk with uh, one of the customer service volunteers at the Air Museum about his almost 40 years of service in uh, civil aviation, commercial aviation in Australia, in customer service with ANZ-ANA and others. Before we get to that, let me... uh, just remind you that if you're listening to this on the day that it's published uh, in on the 1st of April 2023, we have our open day coming up uh, in two weeks' time, April the 15th. We have at this stage four open days scheduled throughout the year. This is our autumn open day focusing in on women in aviation and what a day it is going to be. I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this one. I can't wait to get together with everyone who'll be with us between 10 and 4 on the 15th of April. Go to our website to get the latest details. I will tell you we have a panel uh, of speakers as the centrepiece of the day. Five women who have extraordinary aviation stories to tell from a wide range of different careers and they will be there to meet and talk with. We have organisations, we have individuals who work uh, in aviation in various areas. We'll have ADF recruiting. We'll even have the RFDS, the Royal Flying Doctor Service Simulator. Their Super King Air Simulator will be on site and you'll be able to uh, get inside one of those and have a look at the, uh, the setup of the King Air inside with the stretchers in the rear and the cockpit, which is all set up. And, you know, careers in aviation these days are so varied and there are, we would only hope, um, more and more opportunities for girls and women to consider themselves uh, to have a role in aviation, either on the ground or in the air, uh, in the Defence Force or in civil and commercial aviation Come on down that day and join us. You'll find there'll be lots to see and do. Aircraft cockpits will be open. You'll hear the roar of some of our aero engines and you will get to meet the most amazing people. So that's uh, April the 15th, 2023. But for now, I met up with Arthur Hall recently in Hangar 2 at the Queensland Air Museum and I started out by asking him to describe where he's from and to describe his background in aviation. Okay, well, at the moment I'm uh, residing up at Blybly. I've been there for about 10 years. Before that, we were at Ramuran. Prior to that, Alice Springs, New Guinea, and originally started off in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Uh, With the airlines, um, I was uh, commuting down to high school from New Guinea 
and uh, managed to pick up a bit of a holiday job with an airline called Pat Air in Port Moresby. Uh, we had two DC-3s and uh, two Piagos and a Cessna. Uh, what, what does Pat mean? Uh, Pat Air was actually Papuan Air Transport, so they sort of abbreviated that. First day, we were cadet, uh, cadet traffic officers. There was myself and another couple of friends. The first day I arrived, the boss took me out to the airport from their town office, and we just um, trained two uh, flight attendants or hostesses, they used to call them in those days. So this was uh, Vivian's first day on the job, my first day on the job. And the boss said, there's a DC-3, it's going to Daru, you go on there and help Vivian. So away we went, we had a wonderful time. We had about we had about 26 passengers to look after with cups of tea and orange juice and so on. We got to, uh, got to Daru, Vivian had a bit of a rest while uh, myself and the flight crew took out the seats, loaded uh, a galvanised iron and we did three half an hour trips across to Balamo. Uh, so that was a pretty eventful day for a first day but boy did I enjoy that. So you're a cadet, so you're being paid, you're on the salary. Yeah, that's correct. It was just a very junior salary, but yeah, it was great. Yeah. And what what was it like in the DC-3s in Papua New Guinea? I imagine there was some fair, fairly uh, marginal flying conditions that you experienced. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, actually, one time I, uh, I was put in a, a Piaggio, uh, stuck in the co-pilot seat, given a great uh, fire extinguisher to nurse, and said, you're, you're a dangerous cargo observer because on that plane we had paint, we had fuel, we had TNT and oh, live ammunition. Oh. Now, they, the, the drums of fuel were the old 44-gallon drums. And after we took off, when we got up to about 1,500, 1,600 feet, they started to pressurise and made a great noise. <laughs> and I'm just about to pull the button and push the trigger. And the pilot says, now settle down, settle down. <laughs> I can't get over the fact you've got a fire extinguisher in your lap. Yeah. And there's ammunition and, and TNT in the back. What are you supposed to do if there's a fire? <laughs> Goodness me. Um, and so you obviously had uh, an interest in aviation. What was your career aspiration at that time? Well, yeah, I was a bit mixed up teenage kid and the old man had been through the law system. So uh, thinking it please him, I thought I'd go, go ahead that way. But as a student, that wasn't me. But I fell in love with aviation and, uh, yeah, so that, that's been great. Well, it's a great introduction to what you, I guess, would call flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, as, as, so what years were you doing that in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, 61, 62, Gary. Yeah. And you had then almost 40 years of experience with airlines, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, after, uh, after New Guinea... I transferred with the, with the folks over out to Alice Springs and I joined Pioneer Chewett Tours, which was the agent for ANSET a and in those days. Of course, at that stage, we only had a Viscount 700 service, uh, Darwin, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, um, and Dar sorry, Adelaide, Alice Springs, Darwin, on a Thursday, overnighted, and then came back on a Friday. And, um, yeah, so they, that was fairly... Just, just few and far between those, those runs, unfortunately. 
So your role is in customer service, is that right? So you're at the terminal, you're doing bookings, you're doing... What, what sort of things were you doing? Yeah. Okay, Alice Springs, uh, we, were, it was, uh, we were in the town office and we'd just go out to the airport when the aircraft were, were coming. So we virtually did everything. We'd take your booking over the phone or off the counter, write out your ticket, um, check your bag in, and when you're ready to go to the airport, we'd run, put you in the bus and drive you out to the airport. When the aircraft arrived, we'd marshal that to its parking spot and then uh, supervise the loading and unloading and sometimes having to do that as well. And were you ever required to weigh passengers as well as their luggage? Yeah, occasionally that happened, uh, Gary, um, particularly when there's uh, bad weather conditions and we, we needed extra fuel. Uh, we'd quite often be able to, to pick up a bit of weight rather than taking average weight. So, yeah, that, that was a, a, an opportunity that, that arose on occasions, yeah. So in those days, describe the travelling, the, the flying public. Who, who were buying tickets at that stage? Yeah, okay, pretty much, uh, pretty much business people at, at that stage. Um, Alice Springs, of course, became a very well-renowned uh, tourist mm. resort. Uh, and uh, during the winter months, uh, we, get, we get tourist traffics. A lot, a lot of people would uh, uh, come up by, by Pioneer Coach, do a seven or ten day tour around the centre, and then they catch a flight back home and in the meantime, another bus loader be on that plane that came in, and then they do the reverse. So that, that worked out fairly well. And between oh, the end of April through to September, we, we were kept pretty busy with both the tours and, and the airlines. So much so that uh, ANSET decided to, to make a, the branch in Alice Springs ANSET A. So we were divided up. Some staff went to Pioneer. But I, I stayed with ANSET or went with ANSET A and A, um, and yeah, saw amazing changes in aviation. Well, I guess you could buy a, a smoking or a non-smoking seat in those days. You got it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we have the nose section of a Viscount here at the QAM, and uh, one of our guides, Don McLean, Don McLeod, used to fly the Viscounts, and talks about. Some, some scary experiences. Yeah. So obviously they're pretty taxing conditions for flying, aren't they, in, in, in Central Australia with the heat and the dust and the storms and so on. Did you ever encounter any uh, difficulties or challenges in that way? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, particularly dust storms. We uh, One day we were expecting a DC-6B coming up from Adelaide and uh, it was uh, about Oh, it must have been three quarters of an hour, almost an hour overdue. And we thought, oh, he's, he's gone on to Tennant Creek. He's not going to come into Alice Springs. Next thing, he appears out the front of the terminal. We couldn't see the runway, but he obviously was able to come in onto it. And, uh, yeah, that, that really amazed us. But, yeah, in the heat, we had... Uh, we bogged a 727 there one day. Uh, the aircraft had come in from Darwin. I think it was around about 5 o'clock in the afternoon been a stinking hot day and the bitumen on the tarmac had all melted yeah so we put all the passengers on it was just about a full load so it was a pretty heavy aeroplane tried to taxi out and it just wasn't going to budge oh. so we had everybody come off and sit in the terminal until about eight o'clock at night when it had cooled down 
and they managed to uh, free the aircraft without the passengers on, and then put the passengers on and away we went. So, yeah. So you bogged it in the bitumen, yeah. It becomes molten almost, doesn't it? Um, that is, uh, that's extreme conditions. Um, so how many years were you doing that in Alice? I was out in Alice for 20, 20 odd years, uh, Gary, yeah. And how did the role change in those 20 years? Well, pretty much for, for us, it, it didn't. It didn't really. Uh, we were still based in town, and and go out to to meet aircraft as they were coming in. Uh, we went from uh, DC threes that had come through on occasional tours. Uh, friendships. A friendship was a, a very staple aeroplane out in those areas. Um, DC six Bs, and then of course the DC nines and the seven two sevens which, uh, yeah, really set. And by that time, we were uh, we were having flights from Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and even oh, Darwin, of course, and uh, from Perth occasionally during tourist season. So, yeah. Um. So would you describe that period of time, like you, you could say Australia had a golden era of commercial aviation, couldn't you? And, you know, TAA, ANSET, you had a lot of energy and a lot of money being put into it. Would, would you describe that as that period? Yeah, I, I think so, Gary. Um, I guess the, the two airline policy as it was in those days sort of protected both airlines. Uh, but I guess with the, the population that Australia had, we, we really needed that at that time. Um, probably towards the 90s when deregulation started coming in. Uh, it saw a few holes because uh, TAA eventually became absorbed by Qantas. Yep. Uh, if it had been on its own, it might have been a different story altogether again. But, uh, and of course, we know the sad end to ANSET. Now, you, you were still with ANSET at the time of its demise, but let's not get there just yet. No. So you've, you've done the 20 years, you've seen a lot of changes. Uh, by the way, we have an F-27 Fokker Friendship here as well uh, for visitors to have a look at. Talking about the Friendship, we had a very popular friendship that used to be on the Alice Springs run fairly well. Used to do a milk run on a Sunday, it'd start off in Adelaide, come up to Udnadatta, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, uh, Daly Waters, Catherine and Darwin. <laughs> so by the time they got to Darwin, they, they were pretty well worn out. However, FNI was the registration of the aircraft. It kept coming up and down that track for many, many years and it was involved in Australia's first hijack in 1972 on the 15th of November. Well, tell us about that. Okay, it was coming up on flight 232, it was coming direct from Adelaide that day. I think there was about uh, 20, 24 passengers on that aircraft at the day and coming into Alice Springs, uh, this gentleman that had got on in Adelaide came out of the toilet rushed his way into the cockpit and said, I want you to take me out bush, I need to jump. And the pilot at that stage said, uh, Rolf Young, he said, I'm committed to landing, I must put this aircraft on the ground before I can do anything. So stand, stay there and just keep your calm. So um, it eventually landed on the Alice Springs Airport, taxied around for about two and a half hours, various places and they managed to convince him that the, um, 
the Aero Club instructor, Ozzie Watts, would come out in a light aircraft and take him out to the desert where he wanted to go. In the meantime, a policeman, uh, Paul Sanderman, uh, made out that he was going to be the navigator. So they taxied out in the, in the Cessna 182, I think it was, and approached, approached the Fokker, the Friendship, and the bloke jumped out with one of the flight attendants, uh, Kay Gorham, as a hostage. And as he was making his way across to the uh, light aircraft, the police had set up a, uh, a shooting uh, squad uh, to, to try him, and also Paul Sanderman was armed. But uh, so as he was going across to the, the Cessna, uh, they managed to shoot him and lay him down. But he, in the meantime, he got his pistol out and managed to shoot Paul Sanderman. Uh, he, Paul Sanderman lived, although he, he had a fairly serious scar and injury that he carried for quite some time. The hijacker was alive at that stage, but he, uh, they took him into the Alice Springs Hospital and he died in there. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite an occasion. And were you on duty at the time? Yep, I was, I was on duty in the terminal. I had to relay what was happening back to our operations uh, back in Melbourne to let them know what was happening and what was doing. Because we also had a, another friendship circling overhead coming in from Cairns and they didn't want that to land while that was going on. Of course, he probably would have not wanted to jump that one as well. Yeah. And the hostess, was she okay? Yeah, yeah. The two, there were two, uh, two hostesses on the flight, uh, Kay and uh, Gay Rennie. Uh, they were, they were certainly shocked and, and shattered. But yeah, they've recovered well, and I've uh, recently had a little bit of contact with Kay, and she, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Now, it might surprise some of our younger listeners, or maybe not, but this guy was on the aircraft with a firearm. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, smuggled in from Adelaide. It uh, just wouldn't wouldn't be able to happen these days. But yeah, uh, I mean, who likes airport security? Nobody. <laughs> but uh, I guess when you think about that alternative, um, that's amazing. Yeah, one more time with FNI as the star. There was a fuel strike on. I think it was towards the the end of the 70s. I'm not real sure, but anyway, it went for about a week. And FNI at that stage was probably the only commercial aircraft of any note still flying. All the jets and everything couldn't get any fuel. But because we had fueling agents at Lee Creek and also at Catherine, the aircraft could go Adelaide, Lee Creek and refuel up to Alice Springs, onto Tanner Creek, onto Catherine, refuel at Catherine and then do Darwin, Catherine return and, and vice versa. It kept going for about a week. We, um, we didn't worry about a schedule, we just kept it flying while we could. And it, uh, yeah, as I say, all the other aircraft around the country, as far as I'm aware, were, were, came to a standstill before that was there. Whatever became of FNI, do you know? Yeah, FNI uh, was eventually sold off uh, to America uh, back in 1981, which was just uh, just before I left Alice Springs, so I, I saw it head off, which was a bit sad. And as far as I know, it's uh, it's now over in South America somewhere. Huh? Uh, but, uh, Still operating? That I'm not sure, Gary. Yeah, probably not. It's uh, be pretty old by now. Yeah.
Are you organising a group outing for your club? Maybe a reunion or even a birthday party. Perhaps you're planning an evening event and you're looking for a unique venue. At the Queensland Air Museum, we welcome inquiries from groups to visit the museum between 10am and 4pm and can offer a highly enjoyable experience in aviation history. Tours are conducted by our experienced volunteer guides. Bring your lunch and make a day of it. Hangar 2 at the museum is a unique and welcoming space. 3,000 square metres of sealed floor space, undercover, but open on two sides, allowing cooling breezes and ambient light. Tables and chairs located under the wings of our historic aircraft. After hours, the venue can accommodate up to 200 people with chairs only, or up to 120 people seated at tables. And we have played host to hangar dances, birthday parties and even opera nights in the hangar. Imagine performing on stage with the oldest DC-3 in Australia as your backdrop. Contact us under bookings on the Queensland Air Museum website or email our Tours and Events Manager at tours at qldair.museum or phone us with your inquiry. The Queensland Air Museum Caloundra, an amazing, welcoming and unique venue for your tour or event. So, okay, so what's, what's the next stage then in your career? Okay, 1982, my eldest boy was, was pretty crook and the doctors had advised us to come to a more humid climate. So I managed to get a transfer across to the Brisbane airport. And at that stage, uh, ANSEP was, was selling their, um, their friendship runs out of Brisbane and handing them over to Bush Pilot Airlines, who became Air Queensland. Yep. So they set up a, a, a special lounge for, for smaller aircraft to go out. And myself and uh, Jerry Murphy, a chap that transferred up from Melbourne, and a young lady, of, unfortunately I've forgotten her name, she was amazing. We set, up this, um, we set up this particular lounge, we looked after all the arrivals and departures through there, and in our down times we would go onto the ANSET checking counters and dispatch there, so that was great. And that, that sort of continued even to, into the new terminal in 1988, where we got a lot, a lot busier, we were handling a lot more aircraft, and our peak times were, were absolutely crazy. We'd be, we'd be handling up to eight or ten aircraft in, the time, in one time while the blokes upstairs would only be looking after one. Admittedly, it was a jet, but, uh, yeah, we, but yeah, it was very interesting. really enjoyed it, uh, Gary. And did you get to have much, uh, I guess a lot of your time was spent speaking with customers and dealing with the customers. Uh, what was that like at that stage? Pretty much fairly well. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that interaction. That's that's why I'm quite happy in my role here at the Air Museum. Most of the time, uh, you could talk them around sometimes. Although, uh, when we ha were supposed to have control of the fog that uh, closed flights down for yeah. hours and so on, it got yeah, a little bit frustrating. But yeah. <laughs> on the whole, and particularly down in the, uh, oh, they ended up calling it the Regional Airline Lounge. We, we were very busy, so we didn't really have much time to try and explain things. But we, we were polite to the customers. We'd try and give them the situation as it was. And uh, yeah, I, I believe we provided a, a courteous and uh, 
respectful service to, to all those people that came in touch. Because, you know, you're dealing with people who are often stressed or they're, you know, they're having difficulties of, of a medical nature or whatever and they have to get on an aeroplane and they don't like aeroplanes and they don't like the whole experience and you're the only person they get to speak to, really, aren't you? So it is it requires some diplomacy, I'm sure, and, of course, you can always send their luggage somewhere else and, uh, <laughs> no, you didn't do that, I'm sure. No, no, no you, you took it on as a challenge, Gary, just to... You know, to see how, how you could help those people. And there was more people around than there are these days, where it wasn't all computer checking and that sort of thing. People had to come into the checking counters. And you could be friendly with them. You could, you could work out where they were feeling. And if they were a bit uh, anxious about it, you'd placate, uh, uh, you know, you'd settle them down. And, and they, they would respect that, enjoy that. And then you'd go up to the, go up to the boarding gate and there were staff there at the boarding gate. They didn't just come in right at the last minute. So, oh, yeah, yeah um, you had, had an opportunity con to be in contact with the people a lot more. Yeah, yeah. well, after quite a few eventful years there, on the uh, Wednesday, the 12th of September, uh, I was on the late shift in the regional airline lounge. Our airport manager came around and said, things are a little bit shaky, but we're going to get through this. We'll be right. And then uh, my mate who was on the, the five o'clock start in the morning, he rang me up about seven and said, uh, don't bother coming in today. Everything's all locked and stopped bolted. So uh, unfortunately that was, that was the demise of ANSET. We, we knew things were tough uh, because Air New Zealand had taken over full control of ANSET. At that stage, An the ANSET operation was far bigger than Air New Zealand was. So to my understanding they didn't really know how to how to run the ANSET operation they just sort of let it go day by day and eventually it sort of fizzled out which was was a real shame. ANSET had an international uh, service then as well didn't didn't they? Yeah by then we'd uh, we'd spread out we'd been able to spread our wings with the deregulation and we had service to uh, uh, to Japan to Korea uh, Hong Kong, uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Singapore and Bali. We started off with 767s but we uh, cross-hired uh, 747-300s from Singapore Airlines and uh, that got the service going and we, um, uh, we advertised them as the aircraft with the most, most space, the ANSET spaceships they were called and, and they did, they were really good. But, uh, yeah, again, it ran out. So, I guess, is it, was it purely, I mean, nothing's ever purely economics. It's, as you say, the management uh, of the airline and so on. It's such a tragedy for such a, an iconic and, and long-lived organisation to collapse like that. Exactly. And, and many didn't see it coming, and uh, some did. We have a volunteer here who managed to get out a few weeks before the collapse with all of his... Um, entitlements, uh, but many uh, were left with practically nothing, is that right? Yeah, yeah that's right Gary, and unfortunately a lot um, there were quite a few uh, the husband would be a, a pilot, and uh, the, the wife would be a, a flight attendant, and they were getting fairly well paid so they were living pretty high on the hog and when it all fell apart uh, I know there was quite a number of suicides through that, unfortunately Yeah
Well, fortunately, you're here still with us, uh, but you s experienced that demise as well. Um, what happened for you after the end of ANSET? OK, I, I tried many things after that. I tried a bit of taxi driving. I tried a bit of uh, um, tele-selling. Uh, I ended up driving uh, school buses out around the Caboolture uh, area. Uh, but in late, about uh, August eight, uh, 2002, I got a call from Alliance Airlines, asked me if I'd like to come and work with them. And at that stage they were just emerging from the collapse of Flight West Airlines. Uh, so they had... Um, uh, Fokker, Fokker 100s and a couple of Brazilias at their service and I had a very happy six months uh, with them uh, doing flights up to Bundaberg, Gladstone and uh, Rocky and Townsville but unfortunately Virgin were also expanding at that time and uh, they eventually uh, shut us out Alliance then went on to be mainly charter aircraft particularly for, for mining situations and grew very, very well, and uh, even today they're, they're still an up-and-going, uh, I'm not quite sure of the fleet size, but I think think it's probably up around the 50 or 60 aircraft around the country. So, yeah. They've... And so that was it then for you in aviation, was it? Yeah, I guess so, until I sort of thought, well, i better go down and have a look at the Queensland Air Museum, and a couple of my friends are... Are part of the showcase down here with the DC-3 and the Piaggio. I also had a little bit to do with the, the Heron. Yep. It was operated by Canellan Airlines, not that particular one, but they did do the engineering on that one. But it, you, they used to fly out to Ayers Rock with the uh, Uluru with the with the Heron, uh, the Cessna 337. Yep. Um, there was a chap, uh, Sabair Airlines used to run out of uh, Brisbane Airport to Gainda, Kingaroy and Monto. Uh, we had quite a bit of fun with that. Uh, a couple of the Cessnas also used to come into our our lounge and uh, yeah so it's it was great to come and just volunteer here at the moment. You know you smile as you talk about many of these things. Obviously the demise of, of ANSET was a sad thing but it sounds as though you've had a great time. Would I be right in saying that? Mate the Lord's blessed me amazingly Gary in the, in the uh, yeah the life that I've been blessed with that after after the alliance uh, fell apart I, I went back to driving school buses and I managed to I started volunteering at a, an aged care facility I'd take them out on trips and working with them and uh, eventually got on as, as part of their permanent staff there and that sort of worked in with the school bus run. And, oh, mate, that was just a blessing to be with those, to give those people a bit of life and so on. So, yeah, been awesome, mate. That sounds just like you, Arthur. It's customer <laughs> service with heart. Thank you very much for talking to us, Arthur, and, and congratulations on, you know, all the those years of service to the flying public. Uh, Gary, it's been my pleasure and as I've said before, it's, it's been an enormous life from uh, DC-3s up to 727s which really made the, this country and of course the, uh, the Sky Stars and the Jumbo Jets. Uh, I was fortunate, we, we managed to do a little bit of travel while we were still working and so yeah, mate, it's, it's been awesome and I'm glad to be able to give a little bit back down here at the Queensland Air Museum. Arthur Hall, thank you very much. 
Gary Wells-Hills, thank you very much for your interest in what you do down here as well, mate. Carry on the good work. Gosh, I'm blushing now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to our episode today. Arthur Hall probably won't appreciate me saying this, but he is the he's a true gentleman, and he's the kind of person who provides the lifeblood of our civil society. You know, the person who volunteers, who helps out, who sees their role as being a contributor to the community, and throughout a career, uh, also uh, as a role of service uh, to the to the public. Arthur comes into the Queensland Air Museum every second Tuesday if you wanted to meet him at the front counter. And I just it was delightful to, to sit with him and hear him talk. So don't forget that we're open from 10am till 4pm at the Queensland Air Museum Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra. We are open every day except Good Friday and Christmas Day, and we would love to meet you. So come on in, introduce yourself to us, tell us you've been listening to the podcast and maybe even suggest some topics that you might like to hear us cover. We would love to meet you. Come in and see us soon. Bye for now.